Hey, this is Pastor Doug, and you have made it to our Christmas stories. We are going to be telling a different Christmas story every day of December up until Christmas. I love Christmas stories, and this is the best way I can think of to get into the Christmas spirit. Good to have you with us. Today we come to part two of The Bird's Christmas Carol. I have many wonderful memories of reading this with my family. This is a joyful book in our house, but I need to tell you it's also a sad book. And the reality is knowing that it's sad sometimes makes the happy parts sad because you know how it ends. And so I pass that on just as a warning. When we used to read it in our house, as you can tell, it's not a short book. It's a fairly long, short story. And we would pass the book around when someone would start to cry and couldn't continue. And then we just keep passing it around the family. So one person would read until they couldn't read anymore. Here we begin chapter two of The Bird's Christmas Carol, Drooping Wings. It was December, 10 years later. Carol had seen nine Christmas trees lighted on her birthdays, one after another. Nine times she had assisted in the holiday festivities of the household, though in her babyhood her share of the gaieties was somewhat limited. For five years, certainly, she had hidden presents for Mama and Papa in their own bureau drawers and harbored a number of secrets sufficiently large to burst a baby brain had it not been for the relief gained by whispering them all to Mama at night when she was in her crib, a proceeding which did not in the least lessen the value of a secret in her innocent mind. For five years she had heard twas the night before Christmas and hung up a scarlet stocking, many sizes too large for her, and pinned a sprig of holly on her little white nightgown to show Santa Claus that she was a truly Christmas child and dreamed of fur-coated saints and toy packs and reindeers and wished everybody a Merry Christmas before it was light in the morning and lent every one of her new toys to the neighbor's children before noon and eaten turkey and plum pudding and gone to bed at night in a trance of happiness at the day's pleasures. Donald was away at college now. Paul and Hugh were great manly fellows, taller than their mother, Papa Bird had gray hairs in his whiskers, and Grandma, God bless her, had been four Christmases in heaven. But Christmas in the bird's nest was scarcely as merry now as it used to be in the bygone years. For the little child that once brought such an added blessing to the day lay month after month a patient, helpless invalid in the room where she was born. She had never been very strong in body, and it was with a pang of terror her mother and father noticed soon after she was five years old that she began to limp ever so slightly, to complain too often of weariness and to nestle close to her mother saying, she would rather not go out to play, please. The illness was slight at first and hope was always stirring in Mrs. Bird's heart. Carol would feel stronger in the summertime, or she would be better when she had spent a year in the country, or she would outgrow it, 
or they would try a new physician, but by and by it came to be all too sure that no physician save one could make Carol strong again. And that no summertime nor country air, unless it were the everlasting summertime in a heavenly country, could bring the little girl to health. The cheeks and lips that once were as red as holly berries faded to faint pink. The starlight eyes grew softer, for they often gleamed through tears. And the gay child laugh that had been like a chime of Christmas bells gave place to a smile so lovely, so touching, so tender and patient that it filled every corner of the house with the gentle radiance that might have come from the face of the Christ child himself. Love could do nothing. And when we have said that, we have said it all, for it is stronger than anything else in the whole wide world. Mr. and Mrs. Bird were talking it over one evening when all the children were asleep. A famous physician had visited them that day and told them that sometime, it might be in one year, it might be in more, Carol would slip quietly off into heaven whence she came. It is no use to close our eyes to it any longer, said Mr. Bird as he paced up and down the library floor. Carol will never be well again. It almost seems as if I could not bear it when I think of that loveliest child doomed to lie there day after day and what is still more, to suffer pain that we are helpless to keep away from her. Merry Christmas indeed. It gets to be the saddest day in the year to me. And poor Mr. Bird sank into a chair by the table, buried his face in his hands to keep his wife from seeing the tears that would come in spite of all his efforts. But, but Donald, dear, said sweet Mrs. Bird with trembling voice, Christmas Day may not be so merry with us as it used to be, but it is very happy, and that is better, and very blessed, and that is better yet. I suffer chiefly for Carol's sake, but I have almost given up being sorrowful for my own. I am too happy in the child, and I see too cheery. what she has done for us and for the other children. Donald and Paul and Hugh were three strong, willful, boisterous boys. But now you seldom see such tenderness, devotion, thought for others, and self-denial in lads of their years. A quarrel, a hot word, is almost unknown in this house. And why? Because Carol would hear it, and it would distress her. She is so full of love and goodness. The boys study with all their might and main. Why? Partly, at least, because they like to teach Carol and amuse her by telling her what they read. When the seamstress comes, 
she likes to sew in Miss Carol's room because there she forgets her own troubles, which heaven knows are sore enough. And as for me, Donald, I am a better woman every day for Carol's sake. I have to be her eyes, her ears, her feet, her hands, her strength, her hope. And she, my own little child, is my example. I was wrong, dear heart, said Mr. Bard, more cheerfully. We will not, we will try not to repine, but to rejoice instead that we have an angel of the house. And as for her future, Mrs. Bird went on, I think we need not be over anxious. I feel as if she did not belong altogether to us, but that when she has done what God sent her for, he will take her back to himself. And it may not be very long. And here, it was poor Mrs. Bird's turn to break down and Mr. Bird's turn to comfort her. Chapter three, The Bird's Nest. Carol herself knew nothing of motherly tears and fatherly anxieties. She lived on peacefully in the room where she was born. But you never would have known that room, for Mr. Bird had a great deal of money, and though he felt sometimes, since it could not buy a strong body for his little girl, yet he was glad to make the place she lived in just as beautiful as it could be. The room had been extended by the building of a large addition that hung out over the garden below and was so filled with windows that it might have been a conservatory. The ones on the side were thus still nearer the church of our Savior than they used to be. Those in front looked out on the beautiful harbor, and those in the back commanded a view of nothing in particular but a narrow alley. Nevertheless, they were pleasantest of all to Carol, for the Ruggles family lived in the alley, and the nine little middle-sized and big Ruggles children were a source of inexhaustible interest. The shutters could all be opened and Carol could take a real sunbath in this lovely glass house. Or they could all be closed when the dear head ached or the dear eyes were tired. The carpet was of soft gray with clusters of green bay and holly leaves. The furniture was of white wood on which an artist had painted snow scenes and Christmas trees and groups of merry children ringing bells and singing carols. Donald had made a pretty polished shelf and screwed it on the outside of the footboard, and the boys always kept this full of blooming plants, which they changed from time to time. The headboard, too, had a bracket on either side, where there were pots of maidenhair ferns. Lovebirds and canaries hung in their golden houses in the windows, and they, poor caged things, could hop as far from their wooden perches as Carol could venture from her little white bed. On one side of the room was a bookcase filled with hundreds, yes, I mean it, with hundreds and hundreds of books, books with gay colored pictures, books without, books with black and white outline sketches, 
books with none at all, books with verses, books with stories, books that made children laugh, and some, only a few, that made them cry, books with words of one syllable for tiny boys and girls, and books with words of fearful length to puzzle wise ones. This was Carol's circulating library. Every Saturday, she chose 10 books, jotting their names down in a diary. Into these, she slipped cards that said, please keep this book two weeks and read it with love, Carol Bird. Then Mrs. Bird stepped into her carriage and took the 10 books to the children's hospital and brought home 10 others that she had left there the fortnight before. This was a source of great happiness for some of the hospital children that were old enough to print or write and were strong enough to do it, wrote Carol sweet little letters about the books and she answered them and they grew to be friends. It is very funny, but you do not always have to see people to love them. Just think about it and tell me if it isn't so. There was a high wainscoting of wood about the room and on top of this in a narrow gilt framework, ran a row of illuminated pictures illustrating fairy tales, all in dull blue and gold and scarlet and ivory and silver. And from the door to the closet, there was the story of the fair one with golden locks. From closet to bookcase ran Puss in Boots. From bookcase to fireplace was Jack the Giant Killer. And on the other side of the room were Hop O' My Thumb, The Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella. Then there was a great closet full of beautiful things to wear, but they were all dressing gowns and slippers and shawls and there were drawers full of toys and games, but they were as such that you could play with on your lap. There were no nine pins, nor balls, nor bows and arrows, nor bean bags, nor tennis rackets, but after all, other children needed these more than Carol Bird, for she was always happy and contented. Whatever she had, or whatever she lacked. And after the room had been made so lovely for her on eighth Christmas, she always called herself in fun, a bird of paradise. On these particular December days, she was happier than usual for Uncle Jack was coming from England to spend the holidays. Dear, funny, jolly, loving, wise Uncle Jack, who came every two or three years and brought so much joy with him that the world looked as black as a thundercloud for a week after he went away again. The mail had brought this letter. Wish you Merry Christmas, you dearest birdlings in America. Preen your feathers and stretch the bird's nest a trifle if you please, and let Uncle Jack in for the holidays. I am coming with such a trunk full of treasures that you'll have to borrow the stockings of Barnum's giant and giantess. I am coming to squeeze a certain little ladybird until she cries for mercy. I am coming to see if I can find a boy to take care of a black pony that I've bought lately. It's the strangest thing I ever knew. I've hunted all over Europe and I can't find a boy to suit me. I'll tell you why. I have set my heart on finding one with a dimple in his chin because this pony particularly likes dimples. Hooray, cried Hugh. Bless my dear dimple. I'll never be ashamed of it again. Please drop a note to the clerk of the weather and have a good rousing snowstorm. Say on the 22nd, 
None of your meek, gentle, nonsensical, silly, shallying snowstorms. Not the sort where the flakes float lazily down from the sky as if they didn't care whether they ever got there or not and then melt away as soon as they touched the earth, but a regular business-like whizzing, whirring, blurring, cutting snowstorm warranted to freeze and stay on. I should like a rather large Christmas tree if it's convenient, not one of those sprigs five or six feet high that you have used to have three or four years ago when the birdlings were not fairly feathered out, but a tree of some size, set it up in the garret if necessary, and then we can cut a hole in the roof if the tree chances to be too high for the room. Tell Bridget to begin to fatten a turkey. Tell her that by the 20th of December, that turkey must not be able to stand on its legs for fatness. And then on the next three days, she must allow it to recline easily on its side and stuff it to bursting. One ounce of stuffing beforehand is worth a pound afterwards. The pudding must be unusually huge and darkly, deeply, lugubriously blue in color. It must be stuck so full of plums that the pudding itself will ooze into the pan and not be brought onto the table at all. I expect to be there by the 20th to manage these little things myself, remembering it is the early bird that catches the worm, but give you these instructions in case I should be delayed. And Carol, Carol must decide on the size of the tree. She knows best. She was a Christmas child. And she, she must plead for the snowstorm. The clerk of the weather may pay some attention to her. And she must look up the boy with the dimple for me. She's likelier to find him than I am. This minute, she must advise about the turkey. And Bridget must bring the pudding to her bedside and let her drop every separate plum into it and stir it once for luck. And I'll not eat a single slice. For Carol is the dearest part of Christmas to Uncle Jack, and he'll have none of it without her. She is better than all the turkeys and puddings and apples and spare ribs and wreaths and garlands and mistletoe and stockings and chimneys and sleigh bells and all of Christendom. She is the very sweetest Christmas carol that was ever written, said, sung, or chanted. And I am coming. I am coming as fast as ships and railway trains can carry me. So tell her so. Carol's joy knew no bounds. Mr. and Mrs. Bird laughed like children. They kissed each other for the sheer delight and when the boys heard it, they simply whooped like wild Indians until the Ruggles family, whose backyard joined their garden, gathered at the door and wondered what was up in the big house. Okay, sweet dreams. And may your dreams be merry and 